Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 8, 2 Samuel, chapter 6. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 5 concluded with David's second and more decisive victory over the Philistines. Now, the Philistines had been more than a thorn in Israel's side for the past three centuries. They had prevented Israel from living peacefully enough to be able to establish nation status with their own sovereign boundaries. Now, the Holy Scriptures often present some of the greatest history-changing events in the most subdued way. It was and remains Yehovah's pattern that whatever the nations observed as their customs and religious practices and social conventions, that the customs and social conventions and religious practices observed by the members of God's kingdom would be different, or even the opposite. The victorious Gentile kings of old had teams of writers who would record and embellish every detail of each military victory, often even turning a draw or a loss into a win. And usually for the purpose of glorifying and crediting this king for his godlike invincibility. Therefore, even the most resounding Israelite triumphs in battle are usually recorded with very little detail or fanfare. And the battle leader is usually only mentioned as a matter of record. And this is because when Israel obtained a great victory, it was seen more as a triumph of Israel's God than Israel's army. So to glorify the gory battle itself or its leader would be precisely the wrong attitude for both the participants and the historian. But it would also be wrong for the reader of these events to put the emphasis on brilliant battle strategy or the exceptional courage and skill of the Hebrew warriors. So even though very little is said about these two battles between David and the Philistines as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the impact of David's victories represented nothing less than a sea change in Israel's progress. And of course, it is the Lord who has given the credit for these victories because it is the Lord who won them before a single arrow was shot in anger. One of the things that seemed to have endeared David to God was his proper attitude in just such circumstances. The defeat of the Philistines caused David to exclaim in uh, verse 20, Adonai has broken through my enemies for me like a river breaking through its banks. And so the place where this battle was fought was named, probably by David, Baal Pratzim, the Lord of Breaking Through. Now I've already explained at length that this this point in Israel's history, the term Baal 
had been adopted into the Hebrew language and was often used to simply mean Lord. Well, the name of this place, Baal Pratzim, bore such an impact on Israel's history that we find it remembered even in Isaiah's day, more than 250 years later. Well, what we noticed in chapter 5, verse 21, is that the Philistines had brought their gods with them into battle, just as the Israelites had brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them many years earlier. The Philistines' idols were captured and burnt up at David's order, just as the Ark of the Covenant was lost for a time to the enemy upon Israel's defeat those many decades ago. With that, let's move on now to chapter 6 that focuses on the Ark and the story of David's attempt to make Yerushalayim not only Israel's political capital, but its spiritual capital as well. So open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 339. It's down there at the bottom of the page. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Again, David summoned all the picked troops of Israel, 30,000 men, and then David, taking along the entire force he had with him, uh, with him then, set out for Belai Yehuda to bring up from there the Ark of God, which bears the name, the name of Adonai Sabaot, enthroned above the Keruvim, the cherubim. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out from the house of Avinadav on the hill with Uzzah and Achio, the sons of Avinadav, driving the new cart. And they led it from the house of Avinadav on the hill with the ark of God and Achio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel celebrated in the presence of Adonai with all kinds of musical instruments made of cypress wood, including lyres and lutes and tambourines, rattles, cymbals. When they arrived at Nakon's threshing floor, the oxen stumbled. Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark of God. But Adonai's anger blazed up against Uzzah, and God struck him down on the spot for his offense so that he died there by the ark of God. Now it upset David that Adonai had broken out against Uzzah. That place has been called Peretz Uzzah, breaking out against Uzzah ever since. David was frightened of Adonai that day and he asked, How can the ark of Adonai come to me? So David would not bring the ark of Adonai into the city of David. Rather, David took it over to the house of Oved-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of Adonai stayed in the house of Oved-Edom the Gittite for three months. And Adonai blessed Oved-Edom and all of his household. King David was told, Adonai has blessed the house of Oved-Edom and everyone who belongs to him thanks to the ark of God. So David went and joyously brought the ark of God up from the house of Oved-Edom into the city of David. When those bearing the ark of Adonai had gone only six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened sheep. Then David danced and spun around with abandoned before Adonai, wearing a linen ritual vest. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of Adonai with shouting and the sound of the shofar. 
As the Ark of Adonai entered the city of David, Michal, the, da- the daughter of Shaul, watching from the window, saw King David leaping and spinning before Adonai, and she was filled with contempt for him. They brought the Ark of Adonai in, put it in its place inside the tent that David had set up for it. David offered burnt offerings, peace offerings before Adonai. And when David had finished the offering, the burnt offering and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Adonai Savot. Then he distributed to all the people of Israel, to everyone there, both men and women, a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a raisin cake, after which the people all left for their homes. When David returned to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Shaul, came out to meet him and said, Such honor the king of Israel earned for himself today, exposing himself before his servant slave girls like like some vulgar exhibitionist. And David answered Michal, In the presence of Adonai, who chose me over your father and over everyone in his family, to make me chief over Adonai's people, over Israel, I will celebrate in the presence of Adonai. I will make myself still more contemptible than that. I'll be humiliated in my own eyes, but those slave girls you mentioned will honor me. Michal, the daughter of Saul, remained childless until the day she died. Well, about seven decades had passed since the Ark of the Covenant rested in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, as it should, according to the regulations of God as ordained to Mount Sinai. Well, now that Israel was again united in a political way, not seen since those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, it was now time to restore the ancient worship of Israel that had so sadly become perverted and now nearly forgotten from the moment Israel's collective feet touched the waters of the Jordan River at Joshua's leading. This could only happen when the Philistines were subdued and when the place that the Lord chose as where His name would dwell on earth came under Israelite control. And that place is Yerushalayim. Now verse 1 explains that David assembled 30,000 men to go and fetch the ark. The complete Jewish Bible in this matter gets the vocation of these 30,000 men incorrect. They were not crack military troops. Rather, they were the chosen political representatives of the whole land. They were the Bachar, the clan leaders, other prominent men from all, from, from all over uh, of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. Now since the aim was to bring back the holiest object that had ever graced this planet, it was appropriate that a solemn procession that represented all Israel was convened to accompany that ark. Troops were not needed, although undoubtedly some went along as normal precaution and protocol, because you see, this was no military expedition. The Philistines were now confined to their Mediterranean seacoast territory and no longer a threat in Canaan. Further, the ark was not in the hands of the Philistines right now. It was in Israelite possession 
specifically in the care of a Levite family located at a place that's here called Baal Yehuda, Baal Judah. Now the family was that of Avinadav. Now he may have been a priest because his son's name was Eleazar and that is a common name among the priestly clan. Later genealogies in the Bible also seem to imply that Avinadav was a priest. On the other hand, they could have been a family of ordinary Levites, non-priests. The reality is that the divinely ordained structure of the various offices and duties of priests and Levites had become blurred and mixed and and applied willy-nilly for a very long time. So it's hard to know about this with any certainty. Now, let's pause to recall the circumstances that directed the Ark of God to reside at its present resting place with Avinadav. Don't go there, I'm just going to read this to you. We go back to 1 Samuel 6, verse 21. They sent messengers to the people living in Kiryat Yarim with this message. The Philistines have returned the Ark of Adonai. Come down, bring it back up with you. Then we move over to 1 Samuel 7.1. So the men of Kiryat Yarim came and brought back the Ark of Adonai. They took it to the home of Avinadav on the hill and appointed his son Eleazar to guard the Ark of Adonai. Notice that the name of this place here in 1 Samuel is called Kiryat Yarim. Another name for this place is Baal Yehuda, Baal Judah, the Lord of Judah. And an even earlier Canaanite name that we see mentioned in the Bible is Bela. Place names constantly shift in the Bible with, with, with the ebb and flow of territorial control and the evolution of language. We can be certain that all these names I just gave to you are the same place. Because in the Samuel scroll, found among the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, it specifically says that's the case. Now, Baal Judah was a small hilltop community located about 8 miles uh, northwest of Jerusalem. So it would have been um, considerably less than a day's journey for David and Israel's leadership to travel to Avinavad's home. It is located at the confluence of the tribal territories of Judah, Benjamin, and then in earlier times, Dan. But the name itself makes it clear that the place was definitely considered as belonging to Judah. Well, the last part of verse 2 is confusing. And it's been translated a number of ways. It speaks of the ark, the name of God, and then the cherubim on the lid of the ark. Now, one interpretation seems to say that God's name, Yehovah, was literally written, carved, above the cherubim. Another makes the passage to be embellishing or, 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 or glorifying the God whose ark it is. But the Hebrew sages generally see this passage a little differently. 
They see it as an explanation of which God is represented by the car, by the ark. See, now this matters considering the reality that for a long time this was in Philistine possession. It had been stored away in a common home right, in an area controlled by the Philistines for the past 70 years. And Israel had only in an, uh, in an obtuse kind of way even practiced its religion for quite a long time. Now one would think that what with the detailed instructions in the Torah on building the ark and so on, that it was self-evident that Yehovah was the God that was represented by this golden box with the winged representations of spiritual beings ensconced on its lid. But in fact, this is one of the few times in the Hebrew Scriptures that God's formal name, Yehovah, is directly attached to the ark and used in conjunction with the ark. Of course, this use of God's actual formal name is obliterated in both the Hebrew and English versions of the Bible because in both cases, the 6,000 appearances of God's name, Yehovah, in the ancient scroll texts has been replaced with words like Adonai, Hashem, Lord, and God. Thus, starting around 300 B.C., due to some new traditions, even when the great Hebrew scholars read the Torah, to their mind, God's name wasn't even present. Nonetheless, the way this passage probably ought to be read is, David and all of the people that were with him arose and went forth to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of Elohim, which is called by the name Yehovah of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. In other words, the phrase Yehovah of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim is being presented as an alternate name for the ark. Now of course, what it really is is a kind of revival statement to recall that it is Israel's God alone who dwells above the ark and Israel's God's name is Yehovah. And by the way, just to demonstrate how terribly the Lord's name has become tragically obscured in both Judaism and Christianity, where we often see call a God called Adonai Sefaot in Hebrew or something you'll better recognize, the Lord of Hosts in, in the English Bible. In fact, in the original Hebrew, it says Yehovah Sefaot. Yehovah of hosts. It almost always uses God's formal name in that title, not the more generic words Adonai or Lord. Now to transport the ark the eight miles from Avinadav's home to the city of David, the ark was carefully set into a newly built 
ox cart, and it was accompanied by Uzzah and Achio, who are said to be Avinadav's sons, although they just as easily could have been his grandsons, because very little distinction is made in biblical Hebrew uh, and thought between the words sons and grandsons. And as they led the cart in procession, the 30,000 Bechar, the chosen men of Israel, walked along with David celebrating the ark's reemergence with songs and dance and musical instruments. But when in verse 6, the oxen suddenly stumbled, the cart lurched, it tilted, and it appeared that the ark was about to tumble out. Instinctively, Uzzah reaches up to steady the precious cargo. Instantly, he falls dead. This event so unnerved David that he balked at bringing the ark into his compound. And so he left it somewhere else. Now a great deal is going on here in this story. So let's examine this episode piece by piece. There were a whole host of miscues and errors being committed on David's part that led to this fiasco. To begin, the ark should never have been placed in an ox cart, new or otherwise. The Torah is quite specific that not only should the ark be carried on the shoulders of men, but that those men should be Levites of the clan of Kohat. Numbers 4.15. Let me read this to you. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy utensils, when the camp is about to move forward, then the descendants of Kohat are to come and carry them. They are not to touch the holy things so that they won't die. These things are the responsibility of the descendants of Kahat in the tent of meeting. Numbers 7, verses 8 and 9. Four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the descendants of Merari in keeping with the needs of their duties, directed by Ithamar, the son of Aaron the Cohen, the priest. But to the descendants of Kahat he gave none because their duties involved the holy articles which they carried on their shoulders. Where would Uzzah and Achio, who were Levites or perhaps even priests, or David, get the idea that the proper and solemn way to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the Israelite capital was in a new ox cart? Answer from pagans. Let's once again refer back to 1 Samuel and the story of the Philistines trying to rid themselves of the Ark of the Covenant because it had caused death and devastation throughout Philistine-held territory. I'm going to condense it by examining just the most pertinent verses. Don't go there, I'll just read it to you. Beginning in 1 Samuel 6.1 The Ark of Adonai was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. The Philistines summoned the priests and soothsayers and asked them, What are we to do with this Ark of Adonai? Tell us how to send it back where it belongs. Skipping to verse 6. 
Why be obstinate like the Egyptians and Pharaoh were? When he had done his work among them, didn't they let the people go? And they left. Now take and prepare yourselves a new cart and two milk cows that have never been under a yoke. Harness the cows to the cart, but put their calves back in the shed. Then take the ark of Adonai and lay it in the cart. In a box next to it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Then send it away to go off by itself. Jumping to verse 15. Then the Levites removed the ark of Adonai and the box that was with it, which contained the gold objects, and put them on a big rock. Verse 21. They sent messengers to the people living in Kiryat Yarim with this message. The Philistines have returned the ark of Adonai. Please come down and bring it back up with you. 1 Samuel 7.1 So the men of Kiryat Yarim came and brought back the ark of Adonai and they took it to the home of Avinadav on the hill and appointed his son Eleazar to guard the ark of Adonai. So there condensed is the story of it. Now it's a sad commentary and it is well noted by the way by Hebrew sages that these Levites who were to accompany the ark on behalf of King David and whose duty it was, by the way, not just to know the Torah, but to teach it, had no idea how to treat it. Which means they had little to no knowledge of the law of Moses. So when 70 years after first receiving the ark back from the Philistines... The time came to move the ark to the city of David. It apparently was just assumed that the right thing to do was to transfer it there in the same manner as it was brought to them by means of an ox cart. And they figured that it must be a new cart that had never been used because that had a nice pious ring to it. You know, I can't help but preach here briefly. I have said on numerous occasions that the history and development of Christianity and Judaism have run along parallel tracks, especially in how worship and observances are approached. Both groups started out with the pure word. Both groups determined to stick to God's ordained ways at all costs and then within one generation began to infect it with social customs, popular philosophies and human doctrines that felt comfortable and familiar and fit in better with their worldview and circumstances. In a matter of two or three generations the doctrines and traditions that arose from this mixture of the man-made with the divine became the norm. And most worshipers no longer had any idea of what the original pure religion even looked like. Nor did they seem to care enough to find out. Judaism drifted in that direction. And Christianity has followed suit. The bulk of our modern Christian liturgy has become a strange brew of the Bible and varying degrees of paganism mixed with modern social attitudes. 
resulting in something that I have no doubt that the earliest Christians, nor Paul, nor Christ, would ever have recognized. Yet because the Holy Scriptures are today treated as entirely secondary to a sect or a denomination's practices and teachings, most followers of Messiah are blissfully unaware of how far off course we are as compared to what the Bible ordains. Heaven forbid that an ordinary worshiper would point out the obvious in the Holy Scriptures to a pastor or an elder because the common response today usually boils down to well, perhaps you just don't belong here any longer. How easily we recognize the corruption of God's laws among the biblical Hebrews in all the biblical eras and how quickly we condemn them for it. How equally easy Christ's modern day followers choose to turn a disinterested eye towards God's commandments and how quickly we excuse or rationalize away our own questionable practices which are either unbiblical in their source or even expressly forbidden in the words of God. Well, those who organized and led this procession and put the Ark of God into a common ox cart simply exercised what seemed right by Middle Eastern social convention. And in their eyes, without bothering to consult or consider God's written commands. This would prove to not only be an embarrassing failure for King David, but a very deadly one to one of the worshippers in particular. However, this wasn't the only indiscretion that David allowed for in this misadventure. The rabbis tell us that in this first attempt to bring the ark to to Jerusalem, the attitudes of all involved were completely wrong. And this is reflected in the contrast between the Hebrew words used to describe this first attempt versus the second one that went considerably better. Let me remind you about what verse 5 says. Take a look at your Bibles. 2 Samuel 6, verse 5. Follow along with me. This is, this is good stuff. David, it says, David and the whole house of Israel celebrated in the presence of Adonai with all kinds of musical instruments made of cypress wood, including lyres, lutes, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. The key word here is celebrated, which in Hebrew is sachach. Sachach. Sachach means to laugh, to mock, to make merry, to jest, to joke around in a frivolous manner. To translate this word to celebrate isn't wrong, provided the readers know that it's used in the sense of a party atmosphere. Sadly, 
Some Gentile Bible translators so misunderstood this word that they attach it to the musical instruments and say that the house of Israel played sechach, the musical instruments. Right, which greatly distorts the meaning of this passage. Now in David's second attempt to bring the ark to the city of David, a successful attempt, which begins in verse 12, look at verse 12, we are told that, so David went and joyously brought the ark of God up from the house of Oved-Edom into the city of David. Now the operative word in this passage is joyously, which in Hebrew is the word simcha. Simcha might sound familiar to you. Because at the end of the yearly cycle of reading through the Torah, Jewish synagogues celebrate with an observance they call Simcha Torah. Simcha speaks of inner joy. It speaks of gladness of the heart. It's similar to what Christians might call joy in the Lord. It's a pious and a reverent joy as opposed to a raucous party mood. So the second attempt to transport the ark was accompanied with the proper respect. Now I'm afraid that especially since the 1960s there has been a concerted effort in Christianity to move away from awesome reverence into a comfortable familiarity with the Godhead. We now have the laughing good guy Jesus who is our party buddy. The grandfatherly father who winks at our indiscretions and looks the other way and tells us not to be concerned. We have a Holy Spirit who is more there to provide us with a warm, fuzzy feeling than with concrete guidance, correction, and holy enlightenment. Many good books have chronicled this fairly recent evolution of Christianity and unfortunately the primary purpose was that it revolved around the need to fill the pews and grow the church treasuries. The strategy became to change God's image to one that was more likable and approachable on our terms and to make the obligations of believers towards God as no more than showing up for a weekly church service and tithing. It's not unlike the modern view of our of education at our public schools that's more and more about lowering standards in order that we can move kids quickly through the system. David, the Levites, and all the elders of Israel made this same grave error. Their cavalier attitude was that as long as they invoked God's name, eh, they could proceed any way they chose. They had full liberty in the Lord. They thought that as long as they enjoyed the observance, felt good in their hearts about it, God would approve of it. 
They did what our modern religious institutions have done. They exchanged attention to God's holiness for the pursuit of their happiness. They even figured that the strictness of the law and the Torah, uh, that was for their ancestors. Not for them. The third error was that was made was that Uzzah, was, was mostly of one man, Uzzah's, and he paid for it with his life. The holy ark is never to be touched with human hands under any circumstances. Metal rings were formed into the ark so that carrying poles could be inserted and these were never to be removed. The ark was to be covered in a cloth so as not to be viewed and also to remind, don't touch. Let me remind you of a very basic Torah principle that was obviously simply laid aside in David's day and is utterly forgotten in our time. It is that holiness is transferable by contact. The studies too extensive to review here, so you can go back and look at some of my Levitical lessons, Leviticus lessons rather, to learn about how holiness and uncleanness are transferred from people to objects, objects to people, and so on. This is not superstition. It's not an abolished principle. Briefly, there are definite and well-defined laws in the Torah about the prohibition of anything holy coming into contact with something that is not. We also get some examples of what the consequences are for allowing that. In number 16 is one of the most infamous events that happened during the wilderness journey out of Egypt when a group of disgruntled men led by the rebel Korah decided that they had as much right inside the tabernacle compound as did God's priests. And so they brought their own personal fire pans with them to the tabernacle. It resulted in two things. The fire pans touched holiness. And so they became holy. And the rebels were killed. Listen to this brief section of number 16 in the beginning of 17. Don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. Starting at number 16, verse 35. Then it transitions into number 17. Then fire came out from Adonai and destroyed the 250 men who had offered the incense. Adonai said to Moses, Tell Eleazar the son of Aaron the Cohen to remove the fire pans from the fire and scatter the smoldering coals at a distance because they have become holy. Also the fire pans of, the, of these men whose sin has cost them their lives, they have become holy because they were offered before Adonai. Therefore ha- have them hammered into plates to cover the altar. This will be a sign for the people of Israel. See, there are two remedies for something that has accidentally become holy by means of contact with a holy object. It is either 
consecrated, set apart for use by God or it's to be destroyed. By touching the immeasurably holy ark of God, Uzzah instantly contracted a measure of holiness for which he and nobody else for that matter is authorized. Therefore he was destroyed. He was killed. Should Uzzah have gone ahead and allowed that ark to tumble out of the cart and onto the ground as an alternative? The short answer is yes. Assuming that God would have permitted that to actually happen. This is a great example of what happens when we presume to take spiritual matters into our own hands in our own way. Our good intentions do not trump God's laws and commands. And just so we're together on this, this matter of contracting an unauthorized holiness is not a simple issue of committing a sin or, as in Uzzah's case, of making a choice between committing, if you would, the lesser of two evils. See, that choice, choosing between the lesser of two evils, only comes in matters between humans. In other words, committing the sin of lying to save an innocent human life from unjust death is the lesser of two evils. But lying to God or lying to somebody about God that's entirely different. There are entirely separate Torah laws about the relationship of humans to God and of humans to humans. It's two separate issues. One more thing and we'll wrap it up today. Verse 6 explains that the procession with the ark had arrived at Nakon's threshing floor when this incident of Uzzah's death occurred. And in verse 8, the name of the place seems to have been changed to Peretz Uzzah in commemoration of what happened there. First, Let's look at the Hebrew Goren Nakon. Despite most translations that seem to make it as though there was a man named Nakon who owned this threshing floor, that's not the case. Goren means threshing floor. Nakon means stroke or disaster. So Goren Nakon was merely a description of the place and what happened there. It's not a person's name. But because of this incident, it was later given the name of Peretz Uzzah, meaning bursting out against Uzzah. We'll continue with our story next, next time.